Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'm the Multicultural Outreach Coordinator for Lighthouse for Grieving Children. And along with my esteemed colleague, Ian Hopkins, we'll be co-posting this podcast. That's right. Thank you, Rami. My name is Ian Hopkins. I'm a group leader at the Lighthouse for Grieving Children, and the Lighthouse uh, provides peer support to grieving children, teens, and their families. Thanks, Ian. We launched these podcasts to bring a greater awareness not only to children's grief, but even the diversity within children's grief. Today, we have a special guest, Marcus Logan, who has been kind enough to join us to share his story, as well as his advocacy for 2SLGBTQ plus inclusion and anti-racism, and especially as they relate to children's grief support. Hello, background on Marcus. He is currently the manager of community development and engagement for the Oakville Public Library. However, he has a 20-year history in his community as an educator, an advocate, and a disruptor of systemic homo-bi-transphobia in the children's mental health systems in the region of Halton, Ontario, which of course include Burlington, Oakville, Milton, and Halton Hills. Marcus and his husband of 34 years are now the proud and stressed dads of two amazingly complicated, intelligent, creative, and vulnerable humans, ages 17 and 21, adopted at three and five years old, who have two very different journeys to their forever family. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you, Rami and Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Always enjoy working with Lighthouse. Thank you, Marcus. There is so much with which we can engage your time today. But I just uh, I just want to just put it out there right in the beginning. What brings you to children's grief, especially with the advocacy that you engage? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a simple question, but also a complicated question, I guess. So I am a grieving child, even though I'm now 51. I did lose my father at a very young age. And uh, and so I experienced uh, childhood grief and bereavement for, for my parents and just, you know, a lifelong experience of trying to reconcile that on top of my own sexuality and on top of, you know, my family structure changing um, and not having, this was a while ago, so not having a program like Lighthouse to safely uh, and supportively grieve properly. My mother, obviously, uh, and my, the rest of my family did a great job in supporting me, but, uh, you know, it was still very close and still very in the house all the time. And so there was no sort of outside outlet or professional or even a, even another kid in, in school to, like, go to talk to about, you know, the loss of my dad and how I was feeling and how that really did change and shape my life. I have a question for you, Marcus. When you said a reconciliation, how did you navigate? How did you manage your experience of grief as a child? It's really, you know, I think I'm quite honestly, Rami and Ian, I'm still processing that, right? Like, again, because I didn't have that um, that peer-to-peer model and that other person to talk to. So it, it has been a, a long personal journey. It just keeps coming sometimes. <laughs> but I think, I think back in when it happened, I remember, I remember things like a lot of it's a blur, obviously, but I remember my family, we were at the cottage uh, way up north in Tomogamy and uh, my mother was down in the city because she had just had surgery and she had to work and my dad and I would go to the cottage all summer um, when he was alive and he passed away uh, on our way back to the cottage and so uh, on the on the main dock because we had to take a boat to the cottage. And so I remember um, like just being uh, surrounded by adults that I didn't know who were trying to take care of me 
and I, I just remember like wanting to get back to the cottage to my to my aunt and uncle that were that were still there waiting for us home with groceries and, and stuff. And uh, and then I just remember panicking and thinking I don't know how to get I don't know how to remember to get back to back to the cottage in a boat. Otherwise, I probably would have jumped in the boat myself and gone because I just needed that family member close to me. Eventually, when I got back to back to the uh, to the island and to the to my family, and you know things were disclosed and and uh, we had to go from there. And I just remember like the adults around me saying, "Well, maybe he should stay here. Like he can't, you know, maybe it's too traumatic. And he maybe he should just stay here and we'll go home and you know prepare and, and support his mom and and you know Marcus can stay here and and not have to deal with everything. I just remember inside my head screaming, no, I need to go home. I want to, like, I want to see my dad. I want to see my mom, that sort of thing. So I think, honestly, it was really, it's really been a a journey of, uh, you know, with my mom, really, is, became my lighthouse in, in the end. But again, I think it was, uh, you know, she, her life changed, obviously, and became a single mother, a very active, inquisitive young man, me. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the, the longer, the simple answer to that, Remy, is that it is, um, not really sure how I'm reconciling it, but because uh, it is a lifelong reconciliation for me and really dealing with and missing and grieving and hurting and crying and then like smells bring back the, certain smells bring back like the memory of, of my dad kind of thing. And so it is this wave of, of grief that keeps coming. Yeah, no, I just wanted to ask if I could, Marcus, you mentioned that there wasn't anything like a lighthouse that you could turn to when you needed it in, in your youth. If something like that had existed, would you have availed yourself of, of attending a lighthouse type space? I ask that because it's, it's a question I was asked once in, in group by a participant, and I'm not sure how to answer it. I know hypotheticals can be tough, but would, would you have turned to something like that yourself, do you think? I, because I was so young, I probably, if there was something and my mother had suggested or brought me to it, of course I would have gone. Uh, I think that in, in, um, you know, as I, I developed my, my gay identity, I think that that would have been more of a problem in terms of, you know, accessing a group that I would need to know was a safe space for me, that I could talk about my family, but also, uh, other pieces of things that were happening in my life. But, and, and then I came to, you know, I came to Lighthouse uh, through professional work uh, where I, I did some uh, positive space training uh, years ago and continued to work with staff and volunteers. Uh, and the fir uh, first moment I walked in and started to interact with staff and just, uh, you know, it was the old building that uh, I first was introduced to. And it just, I remember feeling, this kind of answers your question, Ian, in terms of accessing, I remember just feeling that such uh, like immediately supported and like there is an energy there, and I'm not sure if it's the energy of the emotions that come out in your groups and in in the space and it's it's retained there a lot, um, or whether it's the you know the people who have passed on it are are like still around and, and supporting the loved ones when they're in there, but there is there is an energy and a and a beautiful sense of calm and remembrance and uh, acceptance in the lighthouse and that translated and transferred to our to the new site as well and so when I started to work with lighthouse professionally I was like I need to be here right and so part of that reconciliation Rami is my is my journey with lighthouse as well even as a you know as a older adult 
I'm, can I say that? I'm 51. Am I an older adult now? I'm not sure <laughs> yet. But I think, yeah, part of that, that reconciliation is, is my involvement with Lighthouse. Um, so I'm not attending groups. Um, you know, I've been asked to be a group, group leader and I'm, I'm, every time I consider it, I thinking, I, I still think like I'm not ready for that. Uh, but just being around and volunteering and, and participating with the staff and, uh, and yourself and Ian, you know, it just, it just is part of my, uh, my bereavement journey and my, my healing journey. I don't know about being an older adult, Marcus. You've, uh, I mean, not to take away from older adults, but uh, you're exceptionally vibrant. Ian would be considered an older adult, uh, and yet I haven't stepped into that age demographic just yet. You know, it's another couple of months. He's a little older than me. But thank you, Marcus, for that, for that insight, and Ian for those uh, for that uh, inquisition. Uh, something you mentioned, Marcus, that I found I resonate very strongly with is this aspect of grief being something lifelong. Something that's uh, an experience that we maybe recon- con- constantly reconcile with over a lifetime. We always have maybe those flashes, those feelings, those experiences, those smells that take us back uh, in those moments. Given that, and being identifying as gay, how how has grief maybe been different for you in, in that regard? If you perceive it as such, because I know the the services for you know, the 2S LGBTQ plus community in terms of grief support are not necessarily safe spaces. Can you speak a little bit to that? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip that question a little bit, Rami, if you don't mind, in terms of my experience with queer and trans youth. My professional practice was in children's mental health and around queer and trans youth, right? And so there was a lot of, like, I, I worked with a lot of youth in grief, death of a parent or a sibling. But I think when we, um, you know, when we're when we when we're working with uh, the queer and trans youth of our communities, no matter where we are, it, you know, there's there's some uniqueness that we need to to understand, and some layers of grief in different ways or different different griefs, I guess if that's the word. Um, but I think we need to understand that um, the LGBT community is highly vulnerable to already to depression and social isolation. Um, as well as maybe experiencing multiple losses. So we know that like the LGBTQ youth are five times more likely to uh, think about or attempt or incomplete a suicide than their heterosexual partners. A lot of times there's a disproportionate amount of discrimination and hate crimes and violence, particularly towards, you know, trans women of color. So, and then, and then uh, like a community level grief when um, you think about the pulse um, nightclub shooting, right? Very targeted to the queer and trans community and one of the worst mass shootings in uh, history, right? So all of those kind of, those kind of layers play on top of, of a, a queer trans youth, their experience in grief and bereavement. So they might experience the death of a, of a friend in the community, in their school, in their neighborhood. It could be, you know, uh, their brother or sister or sibling, it could be a, a parent, um, so all of these things particularly uh, affect LGBTQ youth. So that's why I think it's really important to, as a as a program, to really think about um, that inclusivity piece, that safer space piece, uh, and really uh, Lighthouse is a is a beacon, if you will, in in the work, right? Because their your equity work and your inclusion work is ongoing. It's forever learning. And it's forever changing. And going back to Ian's question, I would feel very comfortable as a queer person 
if I was a youth and knowing Lighthouse as I do now, I would feel very comfortable accessing that program. You actually read my mind, Marcus. I was a paragraph. (laughs) It's not hard. Ian reads it all the time. (laughs) He read my mind last night in terms of preparing for today. But I wanted to read an excerpt for you that I I prepared and then you spoke to it. It's called The Pulse and the Power of Queer Tears by Brian Lauder. I'm not sure if you've heard this. And it references what you just spoke to. If there's a distinctive power to queer grief, it lies in the styles of mourning that have emerged from queer cultures over time. These styles set the shape and tone of the activism that comes out of grief. And activism, of course, is itself a type of mourning. We must examine how queerness behaves when it, it, it is at a loss. How a community grieves tells us a lot about who they are. Absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, at our conference in our Children's National Grief Conference, uh, one of my one my presentation was on exactly that, right? And uh, we think about Pulse shooting, uh, we think about the HIV AIDS era where we lost a generation of, of people. Like, all of that is still, I mean, for me, again, I still grieve that as well. We have, you know, the high rate of suicide, you know, the HIV AIDS uh, act- activism, you know, got stuff done, right? But, I mean, it the uh, science equals death political action came from the lack of government support or recognition that this was happening and, and uh, no health care, right? And so uh, we do, we galvanize, uh, the queer and trans community galvanizes together and we make change in grief and in, and in protest. Does, does that drive the advocacy that you speak of? Sort of the... Uh, so that collective loss and that uh, lack of inclusion, of course it does, right? I mean, anybody wants to be, whether you're queer or trans, uh, we just want to be uh, supported in whatever we're feeling, right? Our mental health, our education systems, our grief, because grief doesn't uh, discriminate against your sexual orientation or your color or your gender, right? It happens. So I think it does, uh, it really does uh, push the community forward and and to make change and advocate change for change. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, actually, and please stop me if I'm wrong, Marcus, if I'm misinterpreting, but as I'm listening to you speak, and I'm thinking in particular about uh, grief as it applies to to youth, it almost sounds as if we're saying that there's a grieving youth already may feel marginalized on their own just by the fact of that they are a grieving youth. Then when you add in, I guess it's that intersectionality. When you add in, they're not just a grieving youth, but if you have a, a grieving youth who identifies as gay, then maybe that's another circle of exclusion or that or something that maybe they feel sets them apart. I think a lot of people who work professionally in the field of working with grieving youths may feel that they know what they're doing, that they feel qualified to work with grieving youth. What is it that I can do as somebody working in that field to be to expand myself to what to work with somebody who's not just a grieving youth, but somebody who has these other spheres of intersectionality that are making them feel even more uh, set aside from. from the mm-hmm. Ian, you like you've just uh, very succinctly said what I was trying to say <laughs> for sure. You know, so many times queer and trans youth and adults uh, have to live unauthentically, and they can't live and in their experiences and in their schools or in, even in their families or in their workplaces uh, and be 100% of who they are, right? And that's what I've always advocated for is in all the spaces, 
you know, we need to we need to be able to to live authentically in 100% of who we are. So, as a grieving youth, a gay grieving youth coming into a grief team program, I want to be able to come in and say, "This is who I am. I just lost my dad, and this is how I'm feeling," and then move on from that, and then and then understand that you know my experiences are a bit different. So I think as professionals, we need to uh, really take a look at how we're creating safe and affirming spaces and and more so a relationship with the participants, right? Um, again, when we create, like I know Lighthouse does this, it's that sense of community, right? So the groups all feel like they're part of a community and it's a very powerful healing tool when you have a community that's safe and affirming of who you are. So I think as professionals, we need to understand the history and the discrimination and the, and the, some of the barriers and some of the fears that queer and trans youth might have coming into what is probably always going to be perceived as a very sort of white, privileged, straight organization, not just Lighthouse, but a lot of our, a lot of our mental health and a lot of our um, other organizations just, you know, are typically thought of as that and appear to be like that. I think also like be that whole sort of being in listening. So creating a creating a place where individuals can be listened to and heard is essential to supporting and, and healing and resilience. So really think of your um, like it's that cultural humility that we uh, operate under uh, at Lighthouse. It's really thinking of yourself as a learner and really listening to that queer youth or that trans youth about their experience, about their relationships, about their family. Because you know, you might you might be the only person at that moment in that youth life that actually can hear them living and see them living authentically. Um, and so, making sure that you understand as a professional that my uh, me as in my sexuality and gender and in my grief, I'm the expert, right? So we need to be listening. We need to be creating those safer spaces. And yeah, I just again like really acknowledging the experience of of the, the history and the institutional discrimination, social social stigma, which impacts all of our lives, including grief, um, and how, you know, sometimes we're, we're, when we can't be 100% authentic, we go, we go silent, right? So we can't always, you know, be accessing service. And I certainly saw this in mental health, right? Like sometimes it would take youth or it would take youth like several sessions to actually like come out and tell me exactly who they were, what gender they wanted to be identified as, or, you know what I mean? Uh, and so the more we can create that that space where youth uh, and adults feel that they can be safe and be open and uh, live authentically, it'll help that journey, help that healing uh, come faster. Oh, so well said, Marcus. And what I very much appreciate is your acknowledgement and 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 input on culturally cultural humility it's been really infused within in lighthouse and it's interesting you mentioned it today and we spoke both you and i spoke to it at uh, last year's symposium but i was talking to a former executive director of mine at a hospice that uh, you know was seven or eight years ago and we were on the call yesterday and he was he's out in vancouver and he identifies as metis and gay and he was the first person, I love the intersection today, because he was the first person that brought cultural humility 10 years ago, mm-hmm. almost, to my awareness. And he he speaks of it from, from his, you know, from a perspective of being Métis and identifying as, as gay, and how it's changed his life to have that approach and how 
he's he's brought it to every organization. He's worked with so many organizations. This man is a legend, Mr. Ron Lorette. He's been with so many organizations, how he's infused it with a culturally humble approach and how he could truly change the social sector, whether it's children's grief or hospice palliative care or mental health. It really can, in my humble, humble opinion, is it's at the bedrock or basis of anti-racism and even anti-oppression. I think that's a really great example, Rami, that, you know, you have a lot of parts that make up you, right? And so I love my culture and I love my sexuality, right? And so how do, in a lot of cultures, you can't, it's hard to reconcile that just in everyday spaces. So then we add on grief, you know, how does, how do, you know, I think about the LGBT community and the AIDS epidemic and just the, you know, losing our families sometimes um, coming out, you know, we lose our families, our families of origin because we get kicked out of our homes or whatever, right? And And so we don't have, sometimes we don't have that cultural or religious background in terms of how we grieve uh, because we've lost that, right? We lost that family or that culture's way of grieving. And then so the queer and trans community has been really good at, you know, creating our own ways of grieving and, and moralizing. You know, we just talked about the, how the political movements kind of happen out of that. And, um, we create our own you know, sometimes it's a dance party. Lots of times it's a fundraiser for the cause, for suicide or for HIV/AIDS, right? Um, and so we celebrate our lives differently, or you know, we celebrate our lives differently. Um, but then that, that also translates into our grief and uh, bereavement. A lot of times, again, I'm coming back to the HIV/AIDS era where, you know, partners weren't even allowed in the hospital. They weren't allowed to say goodbye. They weren't allowed to be, have decisions or help with decisions around funerals and, and that type of thing. And so, and it's because, and it was because of the sexual orientation, gender identity piece, right? And so families of origin would sweep in and, and kind of shut the partner out. And then, you know, how, how am I supposed to grieve uh, my partner or my life partner when I can't say goodbye or I can't say goodbye the way that I want to say goodbye or, or the way that he wanted to say goodbye, right? Because a lot of times that gets taken away from the surviving partner as well. I love how you speak to it, Marcus. You know, it it brings, it reminds me of an individual that I've been supporting for a few months now in in my other work, who his husband died, but on his side of the family, nobody knew that he was gay. On his husband's side, everybody knew he was gay. So he he couldn't ask his family to come, this is pre-COVID, couldn't ask his family to come to a funeral, to a memorialization, to a to anything. And so he sits with this grief that he can't talk about, except that his family knows that, you know, this person was his friend and they're not understanding why. Imagine this, like, I'm sure you can imagine you and Ian, imagine he, they are not understanding why he's grieving so hard. Mm-hmm. Well, and he has nowhere to put that. So he lives besides myself and maybe one, one or two friends, he has nowhere to take that. And he's been living with it for like almost a year and a half now. I, I, I understand. And in please jump in because you're much more well-versed in, in, uh, in grief than I am. I understand that to be almost titled as disenfranchised grief, as you know, Dr. Kenneth Doka spoke to from many generations. Is that what we're talking about here, this disenfranchisement, this separation of grief? And how can that be reconciled? Uh, yeah, it is disenfranchised grief for sure. I mean, and it, it's probably historical. Like that's that institutional and social stigma um, that the historical pieces that probably 
have, uh, you know, shaped that person's life and shaped that person's relationship and the way they operated in the world. And then upon death, it's it's just re-traumatizing and, and disenfranchising his grief, for sure. I don't know how we can change that other than, <laughs> you know, trying to, um, you know, every day, trying to be the best ally that I can to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and to the Muslim communities, you know, and to the Asian community particularly right now. So it is, it really is like upon non-members and uh, of that, of a group or of a identity to really be that ally. And so when we, in those, in those moments of grief or trauma or crisis, I'm going to, like, I can turn to, I can turn to you and be like, my husband just died and, and just kind of like let it out, right? And not have to be like, well, my friend just died and kind of be silenced and hide that uh, authentic relationship. And, and I want to be able to be, to know that my friend, my neighbor, my teacher, my my mental health professional, my doctor, <laughs> my uh, whoever, the funeral director, I want to be able to be like, I'm celebrating the life of my husband, right? And And I want that to be honored and acknowledged and so I think it's just through education and and that open heart being in the listening you know I'm the expert of my expert of my life and in my grief it is it is really being accepting and and like you know checking your checking your bias at the door right if you're a professional like don't bring it into your practice but sorry I'm getting a little frustrated because I I see that so much and it just bothers me that people can bring in and sometimes they're allowed to bring in their racism and anti-homophobia or homophobia sorry into like into their workplaces right and then and then how re-traumatizing and disenfranchising that is for the person in grief or the person in crisis I wish we could just change the world. Uh, a couple of times now, Marcus, you've mentioned being the expert in your grief and the expert in your life, which, yeah, I would, I'd like to see that as a billboard along the Gardner Expressway, that everybody <laughs> is the expert in their own grief and in their own life. That's uh, something that we emphasize in, in Lighthouse and in our groups. You know, and it, just because we have shared or, or common experiences, uh, we don't have all the experiences and we don't have them from the same way. I mean, it's even, sorry, just to go off on a tangent for a second, you know, even when I've had, uh, you know, siblings in a group before who've experienced the death of the same relative, it still doesn't mean that they've experienced that death or their grief in the same way. Mm-hmm. Everyone is an individual. And yeah, so owning that is uh, supremely important to to everyone. And And Ian, you know, so well said, because that speaks to personal culture. You know, within and I bring it back to culture humility because the essence, the cornerstone of of culture humility is personal culture. And what you're speaking of, Ian, is the individuality of how we experience, process, journey through grief. So that's an important aspect that I know you touched on as well, uh, as well, Marcus. This aspect of you know personal grief, which even in, in and of itself is a measure of diversity. When we talk about diversity, we're not just talking about ethnicity and you know, color of our skin and mm-hmm. where we're from and, and all these, or even orientation or even gender. We're talking about trauma, our experiences and grief, our, our, our journey through life creates this density of diversity that can't be, can't create a competency with it. So, yeah, I think, I, I mean, you're hitting that the nail on the head again. It's like we need, particularly, like I'm here to talk about the 2SLGBT community, right? So it is, it is that recognition of the history of the institutional and social stigmas and, you know, like that adds on top of our grief, right? Um, I remember feeling 
going back to, you know, hearing my family at the cottage saying maybe we should just, you know, keep him at the cottage while this all happens. And I remember at one point standing up as a very young child and saying, I want to go home. And I remember that feeling. And I remember that was the first time I ever felt like such empowerment in myself because I had, like, I'm telling them I'm making a decision and I'm in my grief, I wanted to go home. Right. And so I think that's a really great example of me being the expert of in my grief. This is what I need and you need to help me. Yes. And Marcus, if I could just tail back to something you said about the institutional discrimination, the institutional aspects and phobias in, in, in our social sector. It's amazing. I've been in this field for 30 years and I can echo exactly what, what you just said. We have so much of it within even hospice palliative care. And it's incredible to see it being expressed subversively or even subtly or unconsciously in our in the way we care for people, the way we engage them, the way we policy organizations, the languaging that we use, and even how we market is really not creating safe trauma-informed places with which we can engage the diversity of, of the measures of grief. For sure. And there's a lot of professionals who won't recognize the depth and level of love and care and, and spiritual connection between, you know, two gay men or two women or or trans whatever, right? Like so, sometimes in the in the in my community, uh, our relationships aren't honored or or recognized. Like, I'm really sorry that your friend died. Right? Is is the kind of thing. It's like he's not a friend. Like he's my soulmate and my life partner for 35 years. Whatever we have kids, you know what I mean? Like there's no. Sometimes there's that lack of recognition of the relationship and the depth of the relationship in the grief. And it, in 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 my humble humble experience, it must be heartbreaking. Honestly, we see it across the measures of diversity, but it it must be heart mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Honestly. Well, and then you add on, you know, a person of color, ability, disability, right? Like all of those things, kind of. All of, like all of the pieces of you, no yeah. matter what you are, who you are, you know, influence other people and and their way of of working with you, and not always in a in a very positive way. And so, Marcus, I have a a question for you. Can you share with us the death of your father, the grief that you experienced, you processing growing up with that experience, and now becoming a father? What has that left you with as a father? Yeah, that's a. Powerful question, Remy. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sitting here doing uh, this interview with a picture of my dad to remind me of who he was or who he is. And um, so I think there's a, there's a couple of things that come into play in that um, I didn't have the supports like Lighthouse uh, to, to work through that grief with a peer at all. Uh, in fact, you know, being in school, it was like people didn't know how to they didn't know how to like treat me or they didn't like they were nervous about what they would say in front of me about their dads, that kind of thing. So it was very, very sort of it really felt isolating, even though I had family uh, around me to, to help me through that grief. I didn't have another kid my age or, or like a, a program like Lighthouse to help me through that or help my mom and I through through our grief and, and particularly mine as a child. And so, uh, you know, I talk about this all the time, like the grief, even though it's been many years since the death of my dad, the grief comes back and it's like little things, I might have already said this already, but little things like smells and, and memories kind of, they bring all that back again. And so it never really goes away. It's just, we learn how to, how to manage it better 
And I've really, um, like I talk about, I love talking about my dad and the experience of his death, like the, the actual moments of his death, because they've, I've turned them into into something as a gift. Like I see it now that I'm, you know, something over 49. I can, I turned it into more of a gift and more of a experience that uh, has taught me some resilience and has taught me to work through emotions and has taught me to be stronger as a person uh, when other tragedies uh, around me happen. But as a father, it's really, um, it's really hit home in that both my children are adopted and our youngest one has, uh, we have an open uh, adoption with maternal grandparents. And after that adoption, he, uh, we lost the grandfather, the maternal grandfather. And so for my little guy, the gift that my dad gave me was I was able to bring him through and support him through the death of his, you know, a very dear loved one. And um, so I really, I hope that I've um, kind of passed that on to him and also, you know, in his grandfather's death that he can eventually see that that experience could be a, a gift to him when he's got kids or a family or anybody else, or even like, you know, when Wayne or I pass, right, um, that he, he'd be able to have that experience, have that, um, that strength and that, um, that gift that I've been able to give to him because of the experience of my dad's death. I think it's really also timely, if I can continue, Remy, I think it's really my my first child is Anishinaabe. And so, you know, with the, the recent uh, Kamloops uh, discovery of the 215 children at a residential school for our Indigenous friends and family, it's been a really difficult uh, week and a really filled with grief, right? And my son is a, is a, a product of or a generation uh, that's been affected, you know, so his maternal gram- grandmother was a residential school survivor. And so that experience has affected his birth mother uh, as a child and uh, and affected him as a child as well. So that whole, the impact of the discovery, though it's not new, it's not, not anything surprising to our Indigenous folks uh, because they've been telling us this for a long time and we haven't listened. But now we now we know it's real, like it's starting to happen. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of the grief that our that Canadians should feel around this issue. So just kind of bringing that back, you know, like there's, you know, I worry about youth in my community, youth in our schools, youth in mental health programs, grieving children programs, and how that, um, you know, how that's going to uh uh, translate of how that grief is going to actually really be there for that community. So, and of course, we are talking about the 2SLGBT community. So, I I particularly am holding space and um, care and love for people in my life who identify as two spirit and, and those that I've known uh, in the world that identify as two spirit in in this time of grief and discovery and and horror. Can you speak a, a little bit, Marcus? And thank you for sharing that. You're, uh, um, I'm honored and privileged to even to hear this from you. Can you speak a little bit to how grief can be a form of intergenerational trauma or vice versa, how intergenerational trauma can expand on grief? Well, I'm not the expert on intergenerational trauma, though we live it with uh, one, of our, one of our kids who 
like I said, is a is a product of residential schools and yeah, and and like a, adoption as well is is uh, you know when I do talks around adoption and attachment, it is about grief. It's about loss, right? Children in adoption and children that are uh, the six feet scoop and the residential system, like that's just the indigenous community, right? Like there's still there's a high percentage of black and indigenous kid in our kids in our child welfare system for lots of systemic racism reasons, right? And so that trauma uh, and that grief comes with children who a lot of children who are in the in the foster care and uh, and adoption uh, world. And so I'm not the expert, but I know that uh, you know working with the indigenous community a lot that the blood memory, like the DNA and the blood memory they talk about, is uh, is that intergenerational trauma, and it carries through. It carries through, and it manifests itself in mental health and addiction and abuse, and uh, resulting in, you know, injury and death and uh, neglect and brain injuries and that sort of thing. So I think, I think that intergenerational trauma is well it's obviously real right and because i see it a lot i see it every day in my own kid even the even covid we are already seeing an increase in mental health in in youth and kids and so hopefully that doesn't lead to uh, self-harm or suicide and and create even more grief in our in our communities and our families but yeah i think you know i think we've been neglecting that grief and i think that we also need to very carefully look at how Western colonized white <laughs> mental health systems work with or try to support different communities uh, around grief and mental health. And so that's, you know, I mean, it always comes back to our um, cultural humility, right? So. Indigenous communities grieve and and work through issues of community way different than what we do at, as as a colonized white society. So I think there is a there is a lack of support, and uh, it is kind of amazing to watch and watch the indigenous community create those supports. It's always been there in their own communities, but you know indigenous communities are spread out and and uh, off reserve too, right? So I yeah, I think there's I think there's a real gap in service, right? So we we do need a lighthouse for every uh every major city across Canada or North America. Thank you, Marcus. Well said. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Marcus. I think I'm hopeful that uh coming out of this that finally perhaps maybe we will understand as a society that just like in grief where the person grieving is the expert in their own grief. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that we don't approach this from a top-down solution sort of mentality. With any marginalized community, and in this country, Indigenous people have been marginalized by by the settlers, and any other marginalized community, it, it applies to LGBTQ or uh, whatever it is, we need to make sure that the people who are driving the solutions are from those communities, and that it's not a a top-down solution. Absolutely agree. We need to we need to listen, right? We haven't done a very good job at listening to community around their grief and around their trauma. And so, again, like Ian, I agree. They're the experts individually. I'm the expert as a as a group. You know, we're the experts. So you see that now in the in the uh, uh, the response 
from Indigenous communities across Canada that, you know, they're collectively grieving, right? No matter whether they're an elder or, or a child, right? They're all grieving, a collective grief. Yep. And uh, we, need to, we need to pay attention and honour and give space and, and give access and allow, them, allow the populations, the communities, sorry, to, to grieve the way, that, the way that they need to and, and bring like every kid home. All those kids need to come home and then be ceremoniously dignified, culturally appropriate ways um, to, to cross over. Exactly, uh, exactly, Marcus. And then bringing it back to what you mentioned, Ian, I couldn't agree more. The autonomy, the self-direction has to come from from the people themselves and not the top down. I really appreciate how you, you, you utilize that, especially when it comes to grief. It has to be self-led because they're experts in their own grief. And however, we can be supportive or even just bear witness or to companion or collectively support and, and grieve. That's up to whoever to allow us in and afford us that the companionship or participation. Absolutely. And I think mm-hmm. people who maybe are not as familiar with grief or have been fortunate enough to not ex- have experienced a lot of grief in their lives often characterize grief as sadness. Obviously, grief is a whole lot of things. It isn't one simple emotion. It's not about being sad. There's a lot of other things wrapped up in there. And I think we're going to quite rightfully see those other things like anger and I could probably come up with about 15 different synonyms for anger because there's a lot of that there. And that is grief. That is a part of grieving. And, and I think we're going to see that now. And just to, to frame that, that is foundational cultural humility is allowing not, 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 sorry, not even, that's not even the correct word is making sure or affording others lead and demonstrate to us and allow us to, to follow. They teach us how, they're going to grieve. They tell us how they're going to grieve. We are, you know, honored participants invited into the grieving process or the bearing witness of the grief. We don't do top down and we don't leave. And and as I understand, that's the culture we foster at Lighthouse Forgiving Children is that perception and modeling of cultural humility. You know, we speak about cultural humility and one of the most accurate and articulate demonstrations or spoken word about cultural humility was released by the First Nations Health Authority uh, of BC. And it was through their their project called Creating a Climate for Change. And they defined cultural humility as such. Cultural humility is a process of self-reflection to understand personal and systemic biases and to develop and maintain respectful processes and relationships based on mutual trust. Cultural humility involves humbly acknowledging oneself as a learner when it comes to understanding another's experience. And that was put out by the First Nations Health Authority of BC. And I can't imagine a more articulate definition of cultural humility. If I may add another aspect to cultural humility, and that's cultural safety, which is an outcome based on respectful engagement that recognizes and strives to address power imbalances, as you mentioned, Ian, the top-down hierarchy, inherent in the healthcare system. It results in an environment free of racism and discrimination where people feel safe when receiving healthcare. Any thoughts on those definitions, Ian and Marcus? It's just the perfect, perfect definition of of humility. And, and I just keep, I'm not sure if it was you, Remy, who told me this, not story, but a real life thing, or if I heard it from somebody else, but, but it like 
indigenous people in the hospital, right? And and so they want lots of family around them, and they want maybe want to smudge, and maybe not allowed to smudge in a hospital because of fire regulations and that kind of thing. But you know, once we once we understand that uh, medicines and healing and grief are different in different communities and different cultures and faiths and languages, uh, we can better support uh, the death and dying process and, and also the the grief process in those who are, are left. I think it's I think they're beautiful, uh, perfect examples and, and statements. Yeah, thank you, Marcus. It's called creating a climate for change. Hashtag it starts with me. And it starts with us. So Ian and Marcus, I can't thank you enough for all that you shared tonight. Ian, thank you for joining us and co-hosting the podcast with me. And Marcus, for sharing your your, your experiences of grief, the story of your family, the story of you know your boys and, and your husband. And uh, if there's anything you'd like to leave us with in this space, please. I think, you know, I'm going to reiterate it again that that I'm the expert in my grief and my grief is lifetime after losing very significant people in my life like that doesn't ever go away. And, um, you know, I think there was doing this podcast and, and looking at pictures of my dad and, and talking about him and then talking about my kids and that sort of thing. I just, I begin to realize, you know, again, like I said, it's a, it's a gift. And so talking about it is part of my, part of my journey. And this is why I'm with Lighthouse. Uh, and this is why I agreed to do talk about my dad. And cause I'll talk to him about, about his death to anybody because <laughs> it is part of my therapy. It is part of my, it's part of my grief. Right. And I, you know, I just, you know, just doing this, I, I remembering so many beautiful things and, and events and birthdays and, and all of those like beautiful memories that I have of him. Um, the one thing I, also realizes that I'm forgetting his what he sounded like, right? I'm forgetting his voice, and so that's putting me back into a little bit of uh, grief. And so, you know, I again, like I'm the expert, so maybe today I'm not feeling so great around, you know, being happy and and out there and doing, uh, you know, fun things because maybe I'm I'm sitting with something that you can't see, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes if I say, well, I'm grieving my dad today, and you know, people might look at me going, well, didn't he die 40 years ago? <laughs> but it's it's still real, right? So I'm the expert. So if I'm telling you that I'm grieving, then I'm grieving. We are the experts of our own grief. Anything you'd like to add, Ian, as uh, final words? It's hard to improve upon that, honestly. So I would just actually like to thank Marcus for, for sharing uh, not just his time with us, but his memories, uh, sharing his dad with us. It's deeply appreciated. Thank you. You're quite welcome. It's an honor to share the memories of my dad with people. And it's an honor to hear it and, and be a part of it, Marcus. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this special podcast. For more information about Lighthouse, please visit us on our website, www.grievingchildrenlighthouse.org, or check out our Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn pages. My name is Rami Shami, and this has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. Stay safe, everyone.